This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Susan Swain. Our guest is Hans von Spakovsky. He manages the Election Law Reform Initiative for the Heritage Foundation. At earlier points in his career, he served on the Federal Election Commission and was counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights in the Bush Department of Justice. We're going to talk about the Electoral College. This year, the Heritage Foundation began a campaign to preserve the Electoral College. So make the case for our listeners. Why should it be preserved? Well, I think the reasons that the framers of the Constitution put it in uh, are just as valid, if not more valid today. They they were afraid that if um, a president was elected just by the national popular vote, that candidates would simply go to the big cities. They would go to the big urban centers and they would ignore the rest of the country, the smaller states, the less populated areas. And with the Electoral College system, you know, the larger states still get uh, uh, have a greater say because they have a larger population. But this way, even the smallest states, uh, states like Delaware, still have a minimal number of Electoral College votes and therefore will have some say in uh, electing president. Also, uh, they wanted a candidate to win a series of regional elections, you know, not just a national election, but a series of regional elections, the Electoral College system uh, forces candidates to do that because by doing that, they hoped uh, they would have candidates who would uh, try to appeal to a much broader cross-section of the American public. And as you know, we are a very diverse, very large, very uh, geographically dispersed country. And, and I think those are still very valid reasons today. Respond to the critics' arguments that candidate time and resources for the past number of cycles have unfairly targeted swing states. This year we're seeing that with Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. Well, I think the uh, what, what the critics miss is that if we switch to a national popular vote system, uh, that problem would get worse. And what I mean by that is uh, the thing about battleground states are they change. You know, there are states today that are battleground states that not too long ago were not. They were solidly uh, one way or the other for, for the other uh, the, for the political parties. Um, and there are plenty of states that used to be battleground states that are no longer and are solidly uh, red or blue. Um, battleground states change. What don't change are the big cities and the big urban centers, which just tend to get bigger. So if you want a system in which candidates will spend all their time only in particular states, switch to a national popular vote system because they will totally ignore the the smaller, less populated areas of the country, and they will concentrate on the big cities. In this year of the Black Lives Matter movement, some Electoral College critics believe that its origins were in the founders' interest in preserving slavery, and for that reason, its time has long passed. How do you respond? Yeah, that is just factually and historically completely wrong. I mean, there wasn't any need to think about preserving slavery because at the time of the Constitutional Convention, slavery was practiced in every single state. Uh, Moreover, uh, if you look at the voting on uh, the Electoral College system, you'll find that actually all of the southern states, with the exception of Virginia, actually voted against it, um, whereas the northern states were in favor. You would have thought it would be the other way around. And, And finally, uh, if you actually look at the, I think, the 1790 census, uh, the two largest slave-owning states, uh, north and south of the Mason-Dixon line, were Virginia and New York. 
if you took out all of the slave uh, uh, populated slave, so slaves out of the populations of both states, Virginia was still a larger state population wise than New York. So just from a historical standpoint, there's no there, there's no facts to support that contention. Our conversation is happening just a few days before the 2020 election day. Would you mind giving our listeners a brief primer on how they'll see the Electoral College process unfold? Sure. Um, when folks go into the voting booth or when they send in their absentee ballot to vote early, what they're actually voting for is a set of electors who have pledged or promised that they will vote for either the Democratic candidate for president or the Republican candidate for president. Uh, in 48 states, uh, those electoral college votes are awarded uh, winner-take-all to uh, whichever set of electors get the majority vote. In uh, two states, Maine and Nebraska, uh, they split up the electoral college votes. But the, the point is, on, on uh, in November, we will choose in each state which electors uh, we want to go to the electoral college meeting. That happens on the Monday after the second Wednesday in December when the electors meet in their state capitals and actually cast their votes for president. Uh, That vote is then certified uh, by state officials and sent to Washington and um, uh, Congress has a joint session on the 6th of January to count the electoral college votes. Uh, In the entire history of the U.S., there have only been a small handful of electors who have broken their pledge and not voted at the Electoral College meeting the way they pledged to vote when they basically ran for office. So a couple of follow-ups based on that explanation. Those of electors who didn't stand by their pledge, often called faithless electors, the Supreme Court right. had a major decision this July about faithless electors. What was it and how did it impact the long-term horizon of the Electoral College process? It basically just confirmed the the long-term process of the Electoral College. What happened was you had electors in both Colorado and Washington State, who a handful of them, who broke their pledges and did not vote the way they they had promised to. Uh, In Washington State, uh, those electors were actually fined by the state for breaking their promise. In Colorado, um, they were removed as electors and their vote, their votes were nullified. They were replaced with other electors. Uh, all of them sued saying that um, the states uh, could not do that. They couldn't find them, that they had independent free will and could make their own decisions. And what the Supreme court said is no uh, states, Uh, have the right to put in laws that, for example, require an elector to vote the way he he or she promised or pledged to vote. So in in essence, they can enforce those promises and they can enforce sanctions against uh, electors who, who break their promises. You mentioned that two states, Maine and Nebraska, apportion their electoral college votes by results. It's been interesting because people who are paying close attention will watch that the candidates are 
actually appealing to voters in specific districts in those states this time. That's right. But the Constitution does make it clear, and this is the language, each state shall appoint in, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. Right. So obviously these two states have the right to approach it in this way. Why is it just two? Why have not more states apportioned their electoral college votes? Uh I think a lot of states realize that one of the good things about the winner-take-all system is that it gives a candidate who wins the presidency, e- even if the margin of the, of the national popular vote tends, tends to be very close. It gives them uh, a mandate to govern uh, by winning the Electoral College votes, by doing so with a large number. I think it, it provides a mandate which helps um, give legitimacy to the decisions and actions and, uh, and policy priorities of that particular president. Um, I also think folks realize that if you award, um, if you start awarding electoral college votes according to congressional districts, uh, which is what they do in Maine and Nebraska, where people complain about gerrymandering going right now, the gerrymandering that happens when they draw up congressional districts for the House of Representatives, if you add in that factor that it could influence um, a presidential race, it'll make gerrymandering exponentially worse. Well, of course, five times in our history, the popular vote winner has not triumphed in the Electoral College twice in the past 20 years. How is that ultimately effective representation of popular will? Well, actually, that's not quite true. I know that uh, folks say that it was five times, but for example, uh, in the 1824 election, uh, which is uh, regarding Andrew Jackson, um, actually electoral college uh, electors were not all popularly elected. So we don't really know what the national popular vote was. Also, in the two elections in the late 1800s, including the 1876 race when uh, Rutherford B. Hayes won over Samuel Tilden, even though Tilden got more uh, of the national popular vote, uh, historians have documented um, that there was massive voter suppression of African-Americans in the South uh, and that uh, many African-Americans were unable to vote in that election because of intimidation and threats, and that if that had not happened, Tilden, the Democratic candidate, might not have won the national popular vote. Uh, In fact, Rutherford B. Hayes might have gotten it, too. So it's true that this has certainly occurred in the last two elections. And I think that's it's uh, uncommon for that to happen. But still, that doesn't negate all of the benefits of uh, the Electoral College system. In a piece that you wrote for the Heritage Foundation, you noted that even before the contested 2000 election, there had been more than 700 proposals to reform or abolish the Electoral College that had been submitted to Congress. What are most of those proposals like? What are people looking for in reform? Well, it's it, it's fairly simple. I mean, they want to get rid of the Electoral so it's College. it's abolished, rather. And, I mean, abolish it and simply have people... Um, uh, elected through the national popular vote system. Um, there's a, been a lot of opposition. None of those amendments uh, have passed. In fact, one of the strongest uh, opponents of getting rid of the electoral college system was uh, Senator John F. Kennedy, uh, who spoke out 
strongly against getting rid of it and talked about how it protected smaller, uh, less less uh, populated states and that it was actually a good system because it balanced popular sovereignty with the fact that we are a federal system and want to protect the interests of the state. Uh, one thing I might mention, by the way, is, look, uh, people often point to Europe, they point to uh, the countries in the EU and say, well, we should be more like them. We actually have a more democratic system than all of those European countries because we vote directly for the electors who uh, then follow the popular vote in the, in the state and award their votes to uh, the candidate that we supported. Uh, people in Europe do not vote at all for the chief executives, the prime ministers. Uh, they simply vote for members of their parliament. It's the parliament who then decides who their chief executive or prime minister will be. So we actually have more of a direct democracy than any country in Europe. And since we're going back to history, that was the system that our founding fathers were most familiar with. Yes, exactly right. And that's why they... They they thought it was not a good system. They didn't want a parliamentary system. They wanted the public to be able to have a hand in choosing the chief executive, unlike uh, in the United Kingdom and other countries in Europe. Would any reform or abolition process require a constitutional amendment? Yes. Uh, the, the only there, there are folks out there pushing something they call the national popular vote plan. And they claim that um, it doesn't require uh, approval of Congress and a or a constitutional amendment. But in fact, they're wrong about that. The only way to get rid of the electoral college system is through a constitutional amendment, which as you know, would have to be approved by uh, the states and Congress. And how likely is any amendment in the partisan age that we're living in? Uh, I, I think the chance, that are pretty close to zero. I'd like to spend a little bit more time on the National Popular Vote Compact uh, because sure. there is a ballot initiative in the state of Colorado about it. So right. first of all, uh, how would it work exactly? The National Popular Vote Plan uh, has been an effort to get state states to pass a uh, National Popular Vote Compact. Uh, a compact is a contract between states. And what this compact says is that uh, if a state passes it and it becomes law in that state, uh, it will only become effective when enough states that represent 270 electoral college votes have passed it. That's the number needed to become president. And what the compact says is once it's in effect, any state that, that has passed it agrees that uh, from then on in every presidential election, they will award their electoral college votes not to the presidential candidate who the majority of voters in their state picked, but to whoever won the national popular vote. So uh, in essence, these state legislatures are telling uh, the constituents that um, the state is not going to abide by the majority vote of voters in that state, which I, I think is very problematic. Um, this was passed by the legislature in Colorado, uh, enough voters got upset over this. They um, put together a ballot referendum petition, got enough signatures to get it on the ballot. And so they will be voting on whether to rescind what the state legislature did and get Colorado out of this uh, 
National Popular Vote Compact. As we're going into the election, 16 jurisdictions, that means states plus the District of Columbia, that represent 196 electoral votes have signed on. That's about 49 percent of the way there. But uh, this ballot initiative is the very first time, as you've explained it, that the voters will have a chance to cast their thoughts, their vote on the on the idea of a national popular vote. That's correct. In the past, it's been state legislatures, right? right. So I I imagine uh, that explains why there's a lot of attention and a lot of money going into that contest in Colorado. (laughs) It it certainly is. Uh, Yeah, this is the first time it's been on a ballot referendum, although interestingly enough, uh, last year, and I think this is one of the first times this has happened, um, last year, the uh, legislature in Nevada, which is uh, controlled by the Democratic Party, they actually passed this compact, and the Democratic governor of the state actually vetoed it, saying that this would hurt Nevada because it's a smaller, less populated state. So I think that was one of the first instances where a a member of the uh, same political party uh, in the legislature that passed it then vetoed the bill as governor. Is the electoral college reform chiefly a partisan issue? Is it mostly supported by Democrats and opposed by Republicans? Well, it's become that way. I think that's that's regrettable uh, that it has become that way, uh, because I think it's a system that protects uh, all Americans. I think it particularly protects uh, minority voters across the country. Um, And it has provided us with something that I think a lot of people take for granted. And that's the fact that we have an extremely stable government, despite all our differences and our sometimes (laughs) vigorous fights and debates over issues, uh, we've got something that's very unique. For over 200 years, um, we have handed over power uh, of the chief executive in this country every four years or or every eight years uh, peacefully. And that is a remarkable achievement. And I think the electoral college system actually is is a good uh, part of why that has happened. And the folks who want to change it, uh, they have not made the case that we should change it. Well, that sounds like a great closing argument for a conversation on the Electoral College. It, unless you want to add another sentence or two on why the Electoral College specifically is a part of the stability that our government enjoys. Uh, just that I think it, like I said, it balances popular sovereignty with trying to ensure something that uh, the founders saw as a potential danger uh, and that is the tyranny of the majority. And one thing that we've always uh, had in this country is trying to protect uh, minority views and minority voters and uh, minority opinions uh, from being overwhelmed by the majority. Last question for you is if there is a Democratic sweep on Election Day, do you see the reform effort for the Electoral College picking up steam? Uh I don't know what will happen with it. Um, I, I, I just can't predict because I think this election is so, frankly, unpredictable at the moment. So I, I'm hoping that the partisanship that has become part of this debate over the Electoral College, I'm hoping that that actually disappears and that people, uh, frankly, of all political views, understand that it's actually a good thing for the, for the country today and for the future of the country. I'm envisioning you on election night next week with your Electoral College map filling in all of the tallies as the states come in. (laughs) I probably will be doing that, yes. 
Thank you so much for your time this week. Hans von Spakovsky that manages the Election Law Reform Initiative for the Heritage Foundation. It was nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. 